Welcome, everyone, to the Seek, Go, Create podcast. This is your host, Tim Winders, and I just want to thank you for being a part of this today. I am very excited about our guest. He actually is someone that I had read his book two years ago, and we're going to discuss that because I've got questions about that. But today we have Dr. Benjamin Hardy as our guest. He's an organizational psychologist, best-selling author of Willpower doesn't work. That's the one that kind of pushed my buttons. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. His work, his work is viewed by millions of people monthly. He's featured on Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, Cheddar, Big Think, and Psychology Today. And he's been a number one writer in the world on Medium.com. He's got a new book out, and this is what we're going to do a deep dive on today. And that is, this kind of hurts me too, Personality Isn't Permanent. And uh, the subtitle, listen to this subtitle, Break Free from Self-Limiting Beliefs and Rewrite Your Story. Dr. Benjamin Hardy, welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. Happy to be with you. Hopefully, uh, you know, interested to see where these buttons get pushed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So my first question is, when someone has a title, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, would you like me to call you doctor? Would you like me to call you Dr. Benjamin Hardy? What would you like for me to call you? I would love for you to call me Ben. Ben, you know what? I, I love that. Thank you for allowing me to do that. So first question I want to ask, I give you this, you know, glowing, and I'll, I'll kind of tell you in a little bit the buttons that you've pushed with me. And, and truthfully, knowing a little bit about reading between the lines in your books, I think you're going to enjoy that you've pushed some of my buttons. I think you're going to go, ooh, I like that. So I'll reveal that to you in a bit. But, but tell me, just, I like, this is one of my first questions I like to ask guests, Ben. And that is, I gave the glowing bio, but what do you do? What do you really do? Yeah, on a daily basis, on a more practical basis, I wake up, I journal to myself, I listen to and read books, I write articles and I have conversations with people like you. And then I go home and I try to be happy and engaged with my kids when they're jumping all over me and try to be a good dad <laughs> and try to be a good husband. That's what I actually do. Yeah. And, and you know, really as I think as men, that's kind of one of our higher callings to do that. You know, I was going to ask no you this higher later, calling. Yeah, I'm actually going to ask it now because I think we're going to get into a lot of a lot of detail as far as books in a bit. But I, I really would love for you, you, you shared it in, I think, both books in detail. But can you just tell the audience a little bit about your family? Because you there's a very unique story as to how your family grew. And just maybe share a little bit about that as we're getting started. Let us get to know you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so my wife and I, we got married back in 2012. And then in 2014 we moved to Clemson, South Carolina, where I did my PhD. And we moved there in the fall and we started getting ready for the whole foster care thing. Cause my wife had grown up with foster kids in her home. And so she really wanted to do that. It was not actually my initial desire, but we were on the same team. You know, we have a shared vision, so we support each other. So anyways, we, it took us about three months to go through that process of kind of going through all the training, them phasing us, you know, it's like a hazing process. Honestly, they show you like all the worst case scenarios of like the kinds of kids you could get like arsonists and like, you know, crazy stuff, you know, but anyways, in early 2015, we ended up getting three kids from the foster system. And this was again, during my first year in my PhD program. And yeah, we got three siblings, you know, Caleb, Logan, Jordan, they were aged seven, five and three when we got them. Obviously it's a huge transition going from zero to three kids. And these kids had some challenges, obviously coming from a pretty neglectful background and being taken from their home. There's crazy stuff 
from an emotional perspective that you got to be very empathetic towards. And admittedly, I was not as empathetic as I should be for a long time. It took me a long time to adjust to it and to learn how to want it. I wanted it from a, like a, a mental perspective. I wanted to be a good dad. I, I believed in parenting, but it took me time to invest in that and actually transform through the process so that I genuinely wanted to love and support and be engaged in these kids. Um, but anyways, it was about a three-year process of us fighting the foster system in court and eventually through a lot of miracles. There were several episodes when it did not look like we were going to get these kids. But there, were, there was an amazing attorney who was very active at trying to help us. And ultimately, we ended up adopting the kids in, 20, sorry, in 2018, so after three years. And yeah, that was wild. And then one year, you know, obviously, the crazy part is one month after my, my wife gets pregnant. So she gets pregnant with twins a month after we adopt our kids. So in 2018, we ended up adopting three kids and having twins in that one year. So it was a big year. We ended up moving to Florida that year. And it just now we're just adjusting to it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I know what it's like adjusting to one child. I've got two grown children myself. I'm just now a grandparent and five in one year. That's, that's, um, were you writing a lot during that time? Um, I was right. Interestingly. Yeah, I was, well, I was writing a ton between 2015 and 2018. That's really where I did pretty much all of my blogging. Um, I haven't done an enormous amount of blogging since 2018, although I'm getting back into it now, but yeah. Uh, willpower doesn't work came out a month before we adopted our kids. Actually the month after we adopted our kids, willpower doesn't work came out in February of actually in March, I guess, March of 2018, we had just adopted our kids. And then I started writing personalities and permanent in the summer of 2018, kind of while my wife was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. The, re the reason I asked that question too, is that I've recently finished my first novel. It's in editing phase now. And, and we may talk about this a little bit later, but writing is a, a very unique skill and it's, a, it's an interesting work. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm impressed by is how prolific you've been over the last, let's say, five years. And so, uh, anyway, I may get some tips on that shortly. I would love to share with you anything and everything about it. Um, I go through phases of prolif you know, being prolific and phases of being heavily distracted. <laughs> There's hundreds of blog yeah. posts that I wish I had written that never got written. Let's just say that. Right, 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 right. So I, I, I want to, I want to, I want to back up a little bit to willpower doesn't work. Let's do that. And one of the things I, I, I so I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a business coach. And for 30 plus years, I've been sort of in that arena. We've had our own companies and, and different things like that. And probably prior to late 2018, when I read that book, if someone had asked me about willpower, I would have somewhat uh, boasted about my ability to actually let me back up probably prior to 2008. We had three companies that were seven figures plus in real estate that we eventually disintegrated, lost. And we went on an interesting journey that we've shared on this podcast before where now it's led to us living in an RV and being nomads. But, but, <laughs> but, but I would have said, I would have argued with you. I would have said, you know what? I believe that I could really power through and, and do some things. So, so one of the things I've kind of worded with you, this is kind of my theme when I was doing my research for this interview, Ben, was that I'm not sure if what you talk about is my kryptonite, if I'm Superman, or my spinach, 
if I'm pie pie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, it seems like you kind of push some buttons. And then later we're going to talk about the personality profiles. That is a whole nother topic because as a coach, I use them all the time. <laughs> I love pushing people's buttons. Yeah. You know, I kind you know of it's well, just as a quick, just a quick thought, but I, I want to hear that. I want to get to everything. I'm always intrigued by people in coaching and in self-improvement and development and about the assumptions they make about people and about, from my perspective, how often limiting those assumptions actually are, even from a coaching perspective. Because obviously a lot of coaches use these tools. Um, and I'm surprised that from my perspective, coaching is about transformation, um, not about um, confirming some person's current identity. But anyways, that said, let's keep going. Keep, keep, keep walking us down this path. Yeah. So, so there's a word that someone used to talk about me because I'm, I, I do resonate with you having a, a, a different thought process than maybe the masses and, and attempting to help people move beyond maybe themselves. And there's a word that someone used recently to, to talk about me. They said, are you familiar with the, the term iconoclast? And I went, you know, I don't, I don't know that I am. And they said, it's a person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions, breaks traditions. And, and, and a lot of times it's related to religion or things like that. But, but in many ways, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that seems as if the theme of what you do, am I right or wrong? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about the title of the two books, I mean, they're very much an attack on traditional views. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically taking something that's cherished, especially in our, I'll just say our kind of Judeo-Christian first world Americanized culture, which is, you know, self-made man. If it is to be, it's up to me. I'm going to work my way to the top. And, you know, I'm, I'm a self-made millionaire <laughs> and you pretty much with willpower, and I'm going to ask you to maybe give us a little bit of a teaching and an overview of it, because I'm, I'm going to recommend, we're going to put it in the notes that people get that book also, but you basically say you're wrong, that willpower doesn't work. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say as far as why I wrote it, um, and then I'll share some perspectives on willpower that may make sense. But let's just give this conversation a perspective. If you and I were living a hundred years ago, this conversation couldn't have existed. Right. We wouldn't be on zoom. <laughs> uh, yeah. And no amount of willpower would have made that possible. You know, so that's, that's, that's one thought right there. Um, no matter how hard we wanted this conversation to happen, I just wouldn't know who you are. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. When my wife and I became foster parents of three kids, they came from such a limiting environment. Um, their parents were drug addicts. They were living in a trailer out in the country of South Carolina. They were living, they just sat in front of the TV all day, TV all day. Um, clothes stacked literally to the ceilings, probably infested with who knows what. Now, these kids, no matter how hard they worked, even if they did work hard, their, pers their, their potential was radically limited by that by that context, by that situation. And when you, when you remove them from the situation, you put them in our house, not to say we have this most incredible situation, but when you give kids like this access to tutors, because they're all years behind in school, when you give them access to emotional support, therapists, coaches, get them into 
sports, give them some good friends, get them good, healthy food and sleep routines. Give them uh, grandparents and cousins who love them, travel the world with them because they've never been outside of their small county and show them the world, teach them history, let them read books. All of a sudden, these kids have different potential. Um, so from my perspective, your ability to make choices and have agency, you know, is limited by your context, by your, by, by what's available to you. You know, if you, if you don't have options, you can't make choices. That's one of the reasons why I think exposing yourself to new ideas is so powerful. Um, you know, I talk about Charlie Trotter, honestly, in personalities and permanent, but Charlie Trotter was a famous chef in Chicago and he would, he would let people, impoverished kids come into his restaurant, you know, and, and let them see a world-class experience so that that would expand their perspective. And so, but the, the flip side, and this just kind of pulls together the book, when you give three foster kids to two, ki two, two parents, me, myself, and you know, my wife included, all of a sudden we're required to step up in ways that we would have never have even imagined or been required. We would have never, we've, we went through change that would have never happened if we didn't have those kids. We could have read books. I could have mustered some thought process to change in the ways that I did because I was a foster parent, but I would have never actually gone through the change process if it wasn't for that situation. And William Durant, the historian said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. So kind of pulling all this together, this book is kind of a, an attack on the con on the concept that you do everything yourself, you know, and it's actually an explanation that actually contexts and situations matter a lot more, you know, as far as you want to create environments where you've got more, more and better options, but also you want to create environments that force you to grow in ways that you wouldn't have ha wouldn't have been able to without the situation requiring it. And so it's more of a, it's a more contextual, holistic view of people versus just thinking of yourself as an isolated, independent being, which is just not true. Right, right. And and you know it's interesting. I've I in in the role that I'm in, and also from my personal life, maybe this will go along with what you just said. I've had this theory that change occurs in one of two ways, and we have to be careful when we just put things in this or this. That's one of the things I, I know that you write again, uh, write about. But it is my belief that change occurs, and I've seen it in my life, you may have seen it in yours, when there's an intense, focused decision and effort to make change. Sure. Or, yes, yes, yes. Or there is some form of a catalytic or external event that forces it. Yeah. Now, personally for me, I made a great deal of change coming out of 2008 when we went through a financial collapse and it changed a great deal about our life and continues to have repercussions today. I will actually tell people when I share this story that I would not wish that on anyone, but I'm so thankful that we went through it because there was a lot of ugly, there was a lot of stuff. And, 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 and as we're recording this right now, Ben, we are in a very interesting and unique time we in are our huge, world. Huge. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, we don't necessarily want to date this, that people are going to be, this is going to be released in early June, right around the time your, your book is released. So people are going to be listening to this in early June. And it is our hope that things are different than they are right now while we're recording this in, you know, spring, spring ish of 2020, when we are now and most of the world is being told stay at home. It's a wild time. It's a very interesting, unique time. So, so, so my question for you and, you know, knowing that 
that things, I don't think they're good. I don't think there's going to be a normal. I think a lot of people are wishing for it to go back to the way it was in early 2020. Personally, I don't think that's the case. Maybe you have a different thought. I think there's going to be a new normal. What can you tell people just based on what we know now related to that catalytic event, this change we're, we're, we're about to have a reset possibly. Yeah. Yes. I will say I, I don't disagree with you. And and the research on willpower actually can confirm what you're saying. And I can go into that in a minute because decisions are very important. And, you know, eliminating what we'll call decision fatigue is a, is a big part of this. But yeah, as far as the the global situation that we're in, I mean, I think about it from a systems perspective. When you change a system, you know, any part of the system, the whole system changes. You know, it's good to look at systems as living organisms. It's the world is fundamentally different. It's, it, it would be very impossible to go back. Certain things may go back, but the system will never go back to what it was exactly before. There may be elements, um, but yeah, the system is fundamentally shifted. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a living system. And so it'll be interesting to see where things go. And obviously the people who are proactive and who are moving forward are going to be the ones making a lot of that shift. Whereas a lot of the people you know, when something like this dramatic happens, there's going to be a lot of people who are dragging for a long time because of this, you know, so some people are obviously using this as a launching pad to jump forward, even if it kind of hit them in various ways. And then other people, because of just the drama of it, are, are, are going to be picking up the pieces for a really long time. And it could be, you know, this could be a trauma for them that ultimately cripples their future. Sure. And so with, with all the research you've done and with what you've written about, and maybe I should have saved this to the end, but I think I'm going to go ahead and ask now, what would be some, some areas you would advise people on? I mean, cause this is also an opportunity to make a change. This is also an opportunity to, to be, become someone new, right? Yeah. And I mean, and there's going to be a lot of wealth created. There's going to be a lot of people do well. So, so give us some tips based on a lot of the research you've done. Well, change is easiest in times of transition. Yeah, you can muster the decision, but usually transitional periods are the times when you can get out of your rhythms, you can get out of your roles. You, I mean, you can start to actually think, was the path I was on actually a decent path anyways, or was I kind of just going through the motions? And so I think right now there is, because everyone's going through change, if you make various changes, which are desired, um, it won't be as extreme to your environment right now because everyone's dealing with complexity. You know, and one of the reasons why people choose not to change is because, you know, as the research says, there's a lot of research on like, as far as like deathbed regrets, people's, and, and one of the big ones is, is that they didn't have the courage to be who they wanted to be. Instead, they lived up to the expectations of other people. And given that everything's just in kind of flux right now, I think that it's a perfect opportunity to make desired changes because I think a lot of people are going to be doing that anyways. We're kind of required to make certain changes. And, and it's from my perspective, it's not any harder to make five changes at once than it is to make one change. I mean, if you're going to change, it's like, it's it literally from my perspective, like going from one to five kids as, as much as this may sound weird, the amount of change you have to go through when you have one kid is so extreme that if you actually added two or three in the same time zone, I don't think me going from zero to three was much harder complex wise is going from zero to one. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a brilliant time to change. It's, it's a perfect, fresh new start. It's a fresh slate. Um, 
it's a new normal. There's, there's a future that's different from the past. And so you, you can then take the time. I think what I would advise people at this point is kind of going to the idea of future self. Like, who do you really want to be? You know, who, I mean, I've asked people, how is your future self helping you through the, or helping you get beyond COVID-19, but your future, I, I like the idea of defining a, a fresh new purpose, given the situation, as far as who do you want to be now? And ultimately starting to make decisions based on who you want to be versus who you've been. So I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity right here. Yeah. What's, what's one of the, sometimes I'll like to get people thinking by looking at the, the negative, what is one of the worst things that people could do right now? What is something that, <laughs> that you are pretty confident it would be detrimental to their future or, or the next new normal that we might be seeing? Yeah. Um, well, if you don't have a future self that you're striving to create, then it's actually very difficult to be intentional today. As an example, like, mm. you know, from a, from a decision-making standpoint, it's hard to actually make intentional, thoughtful decisions if you don't have a destination. If you don't have someone you're trying to be, it doesn't matter who you are today. And so it's easy in this situation without a future self that you're trying to create or a, a purpose or a goal that you're trying to accomplish to just be re really reactive to the situation and to kind of the hive or the herd mentality, which right now is quite stressful, bad on the immune system to be in a fear state. And if you're and focused- we need, and, and we need our immune systems to be as strong as they can possibly be, right? We do. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think that the things that matter right now matter more than ever, you know, as far as like, I know things I would say is, is like, obviously morning routines, journaling, writing about who you're trying to be, you know, regulating your emotions right now. I mean, if you are stressed out, writing about them, communicating those emotions so that you can clear them out faster, exercising, eating good food, staying away from, you know, to, you know, being what I would call strategically ignorant of a lot of the media that's going on. That's essentially kind of catering to the fears of various populations. You know, obviously it's good to be informed and it's good to make decisions, but I think from like a, a health and a happiness and a confidence standpoint, if you're living intentionally even now and you're finding the silver lining, being grateful for, for what you do have and maybe even recognizing that this can create some opportunities and then moving forward and you can find a lot of happiness, a lot of purpose and a lot of confidence building even in this situation. Whereas a lot of people are kind of caught in a a downward loop, which is not going to be good for their future selves. Um, and so, yeah, I think focusing on what you can control and, and making progress in the areas you want to are what I would recommend. Sure. That's good. All right. I want to shift a little bit and get into personality isn't permanent and very similar to willpower doesn't work. That has a little bit of antagonistic tone to it that gets my attention. Personality isn't permanent. And, you know, the thing, the notes I wrote down, and again, I did, I was able to read the book and I actually have a lot of highlights that depending wow. on our time, I'm going to hit a highlight and let you maybe teach us and, and educate us on some things and give us a little bit of the layers in the background. But it, it appears as if in society, we want to do all that we can to label people to identify people as something, and, and we often do it to ourselves, but we definitely try to do it with other people, and we could try to get into maybe why that is. I don't know that it matters as much, but that's just the way it is, and part of that is personality profiles, and so what, what I'm about to allow you to do is to, to totally negate 
in season three of this podcast, I did an entire episode on personality profiles and I was really doing it under self-awareness. It really was, it really was designed to understand yourself a little bit more. And, and I have to tell you that going back 30 years in my, I was with the leadership Institute at Bell South, we did the disc profiles and I noticed what you were saying that as soon as we did these profiles, the high D's, which would be me, would all of a sudden walk around with their chest puffed out and they would be more D than they were before we took the test. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah. And then well, some and it's interesting because in, in those environments, the, the label becomes a status symbol, right? It's really interesting. And people then want to be a D versus whatever they're trying to accomplish. I mean, just as an example, there's, you know, Colby is really big for entrepreneurs and I'm a part of a lot of groups that use Colby. And so many people want to be a quick start. It's like, why do you want to be that? Why don't you just want to be whatever your goal is, be a good entrepreneur for your audience. Like, why do you want to be that label? But they become status symbols for sure. Yeah. I, and, and I would notice it and I would almost try to warn in the way that you talk about is that this is just something to be self-aware and also to help us interact with people. And, but yet I would notice the mood could change in the room with a room of 30 people in a corporate training type of environment. Then we would give these tests and me, the people like the D's would all of a sudden be strutting around saying, yep, I'm a D which we know is rewarded a, a good bit in that type of environment in corporate. And then some of the S's and the C's or, you know, the different personality profiles, they would kind of, slink into the corner and so <laughs> anyway but I, I want you to I want you to give kind of an overview of this book but I want to ask before you do that in at the in the acknowledgments and again I've read this I've read this in the last couple of days you said this was one of the hardest things you've ever done writing this book and so I want to ask you why and then tell us what led to it, and then give us a little overview. And then I'm going to actually ask you some very detailed questions about it. Okay. So is that where you want me to start right now? Is why? Yeah, let's start. Yeah. With, yeah. Why, with, why was it so tough okay. to write? Why was it such a challenge, this process? Or at least that's what you said in the acknowledgement. Yeah, it was very hard. Very hard. Um, I mean, truth be told, I probably went through. The tough part about a book is that you really have to get the structure right before you can write it in a good, clean, smooth way. And with what I was attempting to tackle with this book, which was a lot harder than willpower doesn't work. Um, it was so hard because there was like hundred, hundreds of potential ideas that I cover in this book and to actually use them to form a single narrative. Um, I went, I mean, it took a year just to get the structure right. I mean, I went through probably 50 or more different table of contents. You know, at one point there was 50 chapters. At one point there was 30. At one point there was two. I mean, it just took forever. And I got to the point where my publisher was kind of losing hope in the book. I mean, I would explain the book with my, with my words. And they're like, this is brilliant, Ben. Like, we know that there's something here and you've got a lot of stuff, but we need it to be a book. And it just, it was so tough. Um, kind of from a willpower doesn't work perspective, like I was, I, I needed, I needed additional support. And ultimately I ended up hiring someone and, you know, and actually Tucker Max, who's a famous writer, he ended up editing this book and he helped me to think differently about it and helped me structure. And so I needed someone beyond what the publisher could provide me. And Tucker's written four New York times bestsellers. He's a much better writer than me. And so he having conversations with him and, and beginning to get some 
confidence back actually allowed me to write the book that I wanted to write because I very much I didn't want to just put out another book like I wrote this book with my Benjamin Hardy's future self in mind and the future that I'm trying to create and so I didn't I wanted to write a book that could sustain the future I'm trying to create and in order to do that I had to build a lot of confidence that Benjamin Hardy just simply didn't have and so it took me a long time through the writing process of the book to to build the confidence to actually say what I wanted to say. I mean, it was very difficult. So it, is it, was it the, the, the topic, the theme, or was it because you were going through the process that you write about while you were writing about Both. it? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. You could ask my dad, actually. He said, I watched you change while you wrote this book, Ben. And I totally did. Yeah, I did. I mean, I actually, speaking of trauma, you know, and I, we might go into this, but you know, I, I explained the story in my, uh, my own story growing up and how traumatic it was and my father being an extreme drug addict, um, just as a preference, you know, reference, he's not a drug addict anymore. He actually uh, over, overcame that while I was serving a two-year mission when I was 20 years old, about 10 years ago. But one of the things that I did do while writing this book was I, I totally opened up as far, I mean, I've already addressed my past. I'm not afraid of it. I've exposed myself. I've reframed it, but one of the things I did was have lots of conversations with my dad, almost in an interview style, just to understand his perspective of what happened. Um, Cause uh, you know, he, we kind of abandoned him honestly when I was about 16 years old, cause his, his, he just got so bad. It was kind of dangerous, but I wanted to understand to broaden my context and understanding of the situation, his perspective of everything, like what led you to it? What led to the decisions? What was it like? Uh, and he told me all sorts of stuff that I had no, awareness of like episodes from his childhood um former traumas that he had gone through and situations with with his relationship with my mom I had no clue of and the 11 year old version of me who was going through this episode could have never had that perspective and so yeah I changed a lot I, I expanded my perspective of my own past and my relationships and I changed a lot through writing this book and I think I had to in order to write it well yeah you know when we when we communicate and we find out more about our parents and it seems like we do that as we as we age, I don't know if the word is compassion. I don't know if it's understanding, but it I sounds so. like you may have gained more with your father. Is that correct? Yeah. I think, I think that when you do that, you don't categorize people. I think that when you have compassion and understanding and empathy towards other people, you understand them better. And when you understand someone, you don't just put them in boxes to quickly explain away how they behave. Uh, it becomes a lot more complex than that. Uh, there's a lot more context and understanding and possibility. And so, yeah, I think that one of the big messages of this book that I hope for, for people is not only to have compassion and understanding towards their former self, whether, whatever that may have been, because you're not the same person you used to be, whether it be mistakes that you had made or whether it just be situations you went through, you're not the same person you used to be. And that former version of yourself deserves compassion and empathy, but also maybe the people that hurt you or the people who were around you that potentially led you to either down bad paths or they deserve just as much compassion and empathy. And when you can do that, it really frees you. It frees you up. And if you can be free from the past where it just becomes something that you can look to for inspiration or from gratitude or for learning, then your future really opens up as well. Yeah, that's good. Do you think you would have had the conversations with your dad if you weren't writing this book? That's probably not, even though we've been great friends for the last 10 years. I mean, we've been workout partners and stuff like that, but I don't think I would have had the impetus or the reason to, to further explore that. I don't think I, I, from my perspective, I probably would have thought I don't necessarily need it. I mean, I've let it go, 
but it, it meant a lot to him and it meant a lot to me to get that context. And honestly, there's a lot of research on the idea of even just family history and like having, and this is a little different, but having a perspective of your roots, whether it be like your grandparents and generations back, it really helps you be more resilient and have just a sense of self. And so in better understanding my dad and his history and his perspectives and his context, first off, I, I have an, a, a much deeper respect and love for him and admiration for the changes he's gone through in the last 10, 15 years. But yeah, I, I think I even understand myself a little bit better. And so I, I'm really glad I did it. But there was a book, a book that I read while, while, I mean, I read hundreds of books probably while studying for this book. Um, one of the books I read that was from Gordon Livingston. He's a psychiatrist who's now dead, but he wrote a book called Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart. I don't know if you've heard of that one. No, I haven't. Too, too soon, soon too soon old, too late smart. It's a little book and it's 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 a hard hitter. And you know, he obviously was a psychiatrist for 30 years and so he did t- tons of therapy, but he re- he wrote a lot about grief because I think one of his sons or maybe even both of his sons died. I forget now cuz it's been over a year since I've read it. But he's dealt with grief and he worked with a lot of people with grief. Um and he's spent a lot of time studying narratives and about how people frame their identity. And he really explains in that book how you can reshape, you know, you can either view the people of your past as heroes or villains, you know, and your past can be either framed as happy or sad. And, and you know, I was studying memory at the time and just thinking, you know, for a period of time, my, my dad was the villain in my, in my narrative. You know, now he's a hero. But your, your past isn't what changes. It's your narrative of the past, the context and the meaning of it that changes. And so very meaningful stuff that I went through and glad I did. Sure. Isn't that too, and you address this in the book, and boy, I've got all these things I want to get to, but... There, there, we can. I'm not in the biggest yeah. of rush. I got, I, we got, some, we got yeah, some time. Yeah, we're good. So, but isn't that the difference between someone who's a victim and someone who's not, is that they look for play people, situations to blame? Yes. Yeah. You know, something's either happening for you or to you, you know, and I would say victims are people who don't understand emotional regulation and, and, and reframing because, I mean, if you're a victim, what that means is, is that you're committed to the past. It means you're committed to a certain view of the past rather than committed to a future. If you're committed to a, a future version of yourself, then you can't be committed to, to certain incidences as they occur. You know, like you're going to have stumbles along the way. Things are going to happen. COVID-19 is going to happen. You know, whatever's going to happen, crazy stuff's going to happen. But if you're committed to a future, then you don't, you don't invest so much in episodes along the way. And in fact, you then choose to frame those so that they can support you continuing towards your future. So I think a victim is someone who has been hurt fundamentally. I mean, that they have had a traumatic episode, but they're committed to, they're committed to whatever that identity is that's shaped that. And they're not committed to a future version of themselves. So right. that very much limits their potential for growth. It's a fixed mindset. Sure. That's good. We may, we may circle back to some of those things, but I'm going to, I, I, I went through personality isn't permanent and I, I highlighted, I do that when I do a book and I, it's really kind of cool because I actually just finished it up last night as we're doing this. So it's really fresh. And so I'm going to bring up a few things and let you talk about them. But I, th- this is the premise. This is, says the argument of this book is that your personality doesn't matter. So talk to us about that because that's the premise of the book. You're telling people the, the thing that they've been telling me for years that I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I'm a, I'm a high D, I'm an ENTJ, I'm all of that. You're telling me that doesn't matter? Come on, Ben. 
It's pretty great, isn't it? You're, you're um, taking away my identity. Oh no, that's what I've been holding on to all these years. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, one of the things that those personality tests can do for you is they, they very much do give people an identity. That's actually why people love them so much. Um, but it's, it's an identity that can lead to very much a fixed mindset. In order to answer your question, I'm actually going to read a letter uh, and then I'll explain some of the research. Um, my, fa- my grandfather, Rex, who's one of my heroes, he, he, he lived to 94. He died, I think, three years ago. My father actually just texted me about two days ago a letter that he wrote to my brother. And my brother, oh, wow. here, here it is on my phone. <laughs> I know that you, you can see it. Maybe your listeners can't. But this is the yes. letter. I'll read it. But it's interesting. My dad found this. My brother, my younger brother is currently dealing with um, some struggles with addiction right now. And so, he, you know, when people go through waves, they, they have really low lows. But my dad sent this to me because he found it. And it was something my grandfather wrote to my brother about, who knows, a couple years before he died. But it says this. It says, you are a wonderful man, but you must always remember that it is not. Sorry, I'll reread it. You are a wonderful man but you must always remember that it is not what you are today that matters. It is what you want in your heart to become. Life is a process of striving to be better every day that we live. And I really love that because it's, it's not who you are today that matters. It's who you want in your heart to become. And I think that the, the problem that I notice today is that people really want to define who they are today. They want to define who they are right now. They want to, and, and often we can speak in such concrete terms. I am an X, I am this way. I'm, I'm bad with emotions, I'm bad with names. Um, I'm, I'm a very goal-driven person, which, I mean, all of those things could be true to some extent, um, but people really overly identify with their current self. They don't hold it loosely enough to realize that their future self is going to be different even if they don't try to. Life's going to be different in the future. They're going to be different. They're going to see things a little differently in the future. And if you're proactive about it, you can become very different. Um, and so what, you know, kind of going to the research by um, Daniel Gilbert, which to me, I just love it. You know, and to your listeners, he gave a TED talk called The Psychology of Your Future Self. It's like seven minutes long. But he's been studying personality development over time quite a bit. There's a lot of other people who have been studying this as well. But one of the first things that Gilbert asks people is, are you the exact same person you were 10 years ago? You know, are you, are you that exact same person? And most people say no. <laughs> like, you know, you can identify many areas of your life where you're quite different, especially if you're someone who's seeking growth. Um, yes. Especially if you're seeking learning and experiences, you've probably had experiences in the last 10 years that have changed your preferences, changed your comfort zone a little bit, changed your priorities, maybe changed your tolerances. Maybe right now you don't deal with things that you used to say yes to. Um, Maybe you see things differently or you prioritize things differently or you have different habits. So it's quite easy, actually, if you think about it, to realize you're a different person than you were 10 years ago. But the problem that most people face is, is that they, even though they think that they're a different person than they were 10 years ago, they think that they're going to be the same person in the future as they are today. Hmm. And so what Gilbert says is that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. And I think that that's really the big problem from my perspective is, is that we think that who we are today is the finished product. Um, and it really stunts and limits our, our imagination, our flexibility, and our, our desire to actively grow. Instead, and this is kind of what these tests do, you get a label and your whole job is to confirm the label. Your whole job is to set goals to confirm your current identity rather than trying to set goals that replace your current identity with the person you could strive to become. So I, I just that's what I would prefer. I think that your future self is more important than who you are today. And really a majority, once in the beginning you 
kind of prove the point, don't allow yourself to be labeled. The majority of the book is you giving instruction on how to embrace that change. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think and throughout the book, there's got to be at least 150 journal prompts. You know what I mean? As far as how to reframe former traumas and how to clarify your future identity. But yeah, the whole book is one of the core dogmas of psychology. You know, it's, it's a core concept in psychology. Is it the best way to predict a person's future behavior is by looking at their past behavior? Um, and obviously that would support and salute the idea that you're not going to change. And that, and there's a reason why that is, you know, most people would just say, well, it's because of my personality. Um, but there's other reasons why people don't change. And my book was to address those reasons, you know, such as the roles you're in or the situations you're in or unresolved trauma or your, or the way you explain yourself, the story you keep telling. And so I wanted to just explain to people how you can address these things so that your past isn't the thing that's predicting your behavior, but instead it's your future self that's predicting who you are today. Because that's how I want to live personally. I want my future self to be the thing that's driving my daily behavior. I don't want just to keep being the same person I was yesterday. Right, right. You bring up, you brought up trauma a couple of times, and I know that's a theme, especially early, early part of the book. And you, you use that to show a number of things Tell the listeners what they could kind of see. I mean, I'm, obviously they need to get the book, but give us a little bit of background on that trauma, what it does, what you've seen, and why it was such a significant theme or early part of the book. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it from a simple perspective, former experiences can really shape what we do. Uh, and, and negative experiences can really shape us. They can, you know, if you, if you, you know, had a bad experience on an airplane, you might have a fear of flying, you know, just as an example, like we have experiences that shape who we are more than we think. And we may think we're a certain person when really we're actually still just responding to some negative event that occurred, you know, and so how, how, I'll give a little bit of background on, on, on how this whole trauma thing works. And so when I was reading, and actually it's what led me to write the book is I read the book, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. That's a book on trauma. It's kind of the definitive book. But in reading that book, that's the thing that led me to writing this book. It was the thing that pushed me over the edge, I guess you could say. I had been thinking about things, but one of the things that Bessel talks about in his book, and this is like the definitive book on trauma, is he talks about how trauma freezes your personality. It keeps you stuck in the past. And ultimately what it does, some negative event occurs and you have an initial reaction. You know, we all have reactions to events. If someone cuts you off on the road, you're going to have a reaction. But the problem with trauma is, is that there's no secondary response. Um, usually with emotions, there's a primary event and then there's a secondary chosen response. And that's, that's called emotional regulation where you choose to just deal with the response. You know, oh, I was cut off. Oh, well, I'm going to get over it so I can get back to whatever I'm doing. But with trauma, you have some response. And rather than dealing with it, you internalize it. You, you, you don't deal with it. As a result... Basically what happens is, is you, you have an event and you internalize it and then you don't do anything about it. That's usually what happens with trauma. Something bad happens and then you don't, you don't get support on it. So there's a quote from Peter Levine, which I share from the book. It's one of my favorite quotes, honestly, that trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what you hold on the inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. You know, this is such an important concept because there's a big, you know, if you have something bad that happens to you and you don't get emotional support to get through it, often you'll internalize it and then you'll just, you'll see the world through that event. Um, so what happens is, is you form a narrative in your head that this is the way things are and this is the way you are. And it's usually very limiting. And what, what trauma does is it shatters your flexibility. It shatters your ability to, to learn. 
And instead you just, you have no future. Everything is based on what happened in the past. And so one of the things I go down the path of in this book is talking about just so something as simple as math trauma. Um, trauma isn't just something huge. It's not just you getting hit by a car or you being sexually abused or you going to war. Like it could be someone telling you you're ugly. It could be some, it, it could just be you, you, me, honestly, as a podcast guest, not showing up well, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm a bad guest. And so as a result, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not doing this. Like that could be a trauma, you know, cause I had a negative event and it could form a narrative. And so like with math trauma, as an example, you know, someone could have been told that they were bad at math or they failed a test and then they formed a, a narrative what we call a cognitive commitment in psychology. And they said, I can't do this anymore. And so their flexibility towards learning stops. And you need, you need flexibility and you need imagination to learn. And so this is why trauma can really stop you. Unless you resolve and deal with it, it stops you from moving forward in your life. And you become, well, as, as, um, as Gabor Mate said, your personality becomes a coping mechanism to the trauma. Essentially, you, you build your life around not dealing with it. And you know, negative coping mechanisms could occur, such as addictions or just negative cycles. And so you need, that's why you need the empathetic witness. And that's why you need to get help. Um, as the saying in Alcoholics Anonymous goes, you're as sick as your secrets. You know, so I think mm -hmm. this is why you really, all progress starts by telling the truth. This is why you really need to get support and help on this to move forward. Yeah, you use the word flexibility quite a bit. And one of the things I always wonder with our current society where we have access to so much so many tools, so much information. Yeah. But yet if we were to go back and you were to interview your grandfather Rex in the forties and ask him about what his passion in life is and what is he trying to accomplish and has he been traumatized and all that? I mean, I know I talked to my grandfather about this. They didn't, I, I could be wrong. Could I mean, small scope. They didn't think about it that much. They, they did their work. And so, so I'm almost wondering, are we more or less flexible as a society? And there may not be data on this. This could just be your, you know, the evidence that you have as your observation. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we, we have access to so much, but yet it seems as if people are limiting themselves even more, maybe? Yeah, I think, I think we're becoming less flexible. I mean, if I'm thinking about it, because people, yeah, I think the people had a lot of suppressed trauma and baggage back then that shaped them and influenced them. But in a lot of ways, the culture of the time was you just keep going. <laughs> and I, that could be for better or for worse. But nowadays, I think people are becoming increasingly less emotionally developed. Um, they're, they're more traumatized and they're, and they're, and they're not necessarily... Or handling weaker, it well. You know, you know, some people from an older generation would say, oh, they're, they're weak and they would make fun of millennials. Would, is that a word to use or is that a bad word? Uh, well, I would say they're, they're, they're more rigid, you know, um, they're, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say weaker, but also weak can, I would say they're less flexible um, and less resilient could be, you know, but I, one of the, one of the things I talk about, honestly, is the idea of authenticity. You know, we live in a culture that really prizes the idea of being true to yourself. Um, and there's a lot of high school kids, as an example, who just boycott the idea of doing anything difficult at school. You know, don't, they won't do like a in-class oral presentation because that's not who they are. They don't want to be a speaker. And so you shouldn't be required to do anything that's difficult. I think in former generations, you just, you had to do hard things. You know, I mean, actually what's interesting, our 12-year-old our kid is reading a book called Do Hard Things. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. It's kind of a funny book, but it's written by these two high school kids. 
and the book actually explains um the idea of teenagers honestly like back generations past there was no idea that your teenage years were a time just to sit and just kick kick it usually in former generations honestly when you turned like 10 or 11 or 12 it was time to go from kid to adult there was no space in between it was like you gotta go get a job you know like and we've created this period of time where it's between childhood and adult and you can kind of just float in between that period of time and there's no expectations that you're going to do anything interesting you're just a kid still even though you're now kind of in between well what's really interesting now is that it's no longer just teenagers who are expected to do nothing in our culture now people are pushing adulthood off into the 30s like where they're still living in their parents home there's actually a term now called adulting where like people in their 30s are you know if they're doing their dishes or their laundry they're saying wow i'm being i'm adulting right now and so like we've we've pushed expectation off of growing up from the teens and the to the 20s and now it's into the 30s where it's like there's you know and there there is a lot of data on this now that millennials are getting married way later um they're buying houses later they're they're not taking the steps forward as far as development they're like five to 10 years behind as far as averages on certain decisions, having kids, getting married. Not, this isn't to say that they're required. A lot of it's cultural, but as far as growing up or at least maturing in certain stages, we're definitely pushing it off further and further. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that all of a sudden we start putting generational labels on people. You know, we talked about identifying labels yeah, earlier and, and I'm in my mid fifties and, we look at people that are our children's age, millennials, and then we say, they're all this way, right? (laughs) Condescending. Yeah. Very condescending, but yet they're, they're so bright, brilliant in so many ways, but they're different. And that's because there's difference in society and culture. And there are definitely generational differences. (laughs) Yeah. I can, I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the statements that uh, you mentioned in the book is that less than 13% of people report being satisfied with themselves as they are. Talk to us more about that statistic and what, has that changed over time or is that current? Is it just I always think so. been that I, I think that, I think, think about it. By not being satisfied, I think anyone and everyone has aspects of themselves that they would like to be different. Whether it's, I want to be more patient. I want to be more creative, more confident. I want to have more compassion. I mean, I think all of us, I think it's natural for us all to want to develop in various ways. Um, I think the opposite is actually more weird when someone is just fully satisfied with where they're at. Um, that's not to say you don't have, I I would love to interview one of the 17% that says I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm great. No No worries. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the person that I've always needed to be, you know, that's, that's, I mean, that's not most people according to the research and I, and I don't think human beings are meant to be that way. I think that human beings are meant to grow and be curious and, and to expand. What's weird is when someone stops doing that. And, and then that's why such things as trauma comes up. And you got to look at what was it that stopped this person's development? It could have been a situation. It could have been an event. Uh, it could be a continuous thing where they're just in a role or they're around a peer group that's literally stunting their growth, you know? And so, you know, we're happy as human beings when we're growing, you know, and learning. And, and so I think that having a future that you're, you, and from a, like a, from like a psychological perspective, you can't actually have hope unless there's a future in mind. You can't have motivation without hope. And so 
motivation, hope, confidence, faith, courage, like these things that make people exceptional require striving for a future, not just dwelling in your current self. Um, right. You just brought up something that I wasn't going to go there, but I'll go ahead and go there. We actually, our audience, there's, there's a lot of business people who are in the entrepreneur space, but there's also a lot of people of faith, people that are in ministry. So where, where's, what does the spiritual component have to do with this? And I'll even allow this, both positive and negative. What is the spiritual component of, of the, the, um, the premise of the book? Yeah. I mean, I could share my perspective. I'd be happy to have your perspective because I'm guessing you've got a different perspective than me. Um, and I maybe, think, maybe not. I think, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe you're, uh, maybe, I mean, I'd be interested in your take as well. As far as, I mean, I look at this from so many different perspectives. Um, my, you know, my belief, and I do have, you know, faith in God and it's very much a big aspect of how I see the world. And I think that faith in God is such a powerful thing to have. And it doesn't distinct, it doesn't, take away from my belief in science. It doesn't take away from my belief in business. To me, it supports both of those things and helps me learn and grow as a person and helps me to seek change. But from my belief system, I, I definitely believe that human beings are, are here to learn, to grow, to develop and change. And I, I kind of see this life as a classroom experience. Um, from like a, a perspective of redeeming the past, I mean, I don't actually go into this in the book, but it makes a lot of sense as far as that your past can and should be something viewed as this happened for me, not to me. This is education. This is learning, even the worst traumas and the worst pain, and that memories can be changed. Uh, obviously, from a Christian perspective, that makes a lot of, pers- a lot of sense that, that God can change the meaning of former sins or former pains or former, fr- however you want to view it that the past can be redeemed and that you can be transformed. I mean, that to me, from a Christian perspective, this makes a lot of sense. You would become a new creature in God. Um, to me, that's how kind of from a Christian perspective, you can view it. The great part is from a psychological perspective, it makes a lot of sense and that yeah. we can become different. And to think that you are who you are, or you're hardwired or you're defined by a label, I think actually goes against from my perspective, religious perspective it goes against sound science, but it also, to me, goes against core spiritual beliefs as well. To me, it does. To me, I wouldn't want to be defined that way because I believe that through God, all things are possible kind of thing, <laughs> and and, uh, yeah. and that God's a lot bigger than some label. So yeah, those are some of the thoughts that I guess yeah, I could share. I, and I'm the same way. Listen, my background, I'm an engineer from Georgia Tech, so there's a, a real practical thought but I'm also, I mean, I spend a lot of time with people that are in the Christian circles, and there are some people that are of the mindset of, God made me this way, live with it. <laughs> and, and that's, to me, that goes against the foundation of we're in a growth mode. We're supposed to be expanding, growing, multiplying, and, and that, to me, is a, 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 a theme of what you write about. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think that God just made us into something that wasn't to grow. I think that, you know, I think that because of what He did, we can we can grow in brilliant ways. We can become like Him, like Christ, yeah. you know. And so I think sure. that if you if you're not growing, then you're not living the gospel. As weird as that sounds, <laughs> like I think no. that He encourages He encourages us to. And I think if you're, yeah. So I agree with you. I think it's strange when I hear that, and I've heard that that you know this is how God made me, and so this is who I am. You know, and I think that that really limits your faith. Honestly, it really limits your ability to access spiritual gifts and just, uh, and honestly, just to to seek help. When I uh, like from a willpower doesn't work perspective, and putting yourself in situations that I call forcing functions, um, 
it's really powerful to seek situations and opportunities and, and, and goals that are so big that you can't accomplish them from your perspective without God's help that you need to change. I mean, I, I'm actually, I actually have two books coming out this year. One of the reasons I've been in the cave for so long is this book comes out in, um, in June, but I have another book. It's more of an entrepreneurial book. It's a co-authorship with a guy named Dan Sullivan. Um, that book comes out in October and I just finished writing that book about a week, about two weeks ago, but the deadline was so short on that book. And I, and I was, uh, it was, it was so short that I honestly, I was, I, I got so sick cause I was stressed writing this book and I literally got on my knees, you know, and I was like, I can't do this. Like I need, I need a freaking miracle, but I love that. I mean, that's what, I, that's what got me through, uh, through adopting three kids. And so I think it's brilliant to be in situations that are so big that you, you can't do them alone. Obviously you need a support from other people, but also to get that additional support from God. I think that's really what, that's what life's about. Yeah, that's good. Well, a few things I want to ask as we, as we start wrapping up here, when I was reading through the, um, personality isn't per- permanent. I saw the word willpower jump out at me. And because I'd already read your willpower book, I went, huh, what's this statement? And the statement is with low willpower, it's easy to fall into bad choices. And I'm going to, and I said, Hmm, I want to ask him to tie together. The willpower doesn't work with the statement here with low willpower. Maybe I'm trying to just, you know, rattle you is what I'm trying to do. So, so you could say, Hey, bad question, Tim. But, but, um, so with low willpower, you, you say that there is a, in a, uh, a place for willpower. Uh, what I'm saying is, is, you know, when you have low willpower, you seek high dopamine. Willpower obviously exists. We all have it. It's it, what I'm, the argument of my other book is, is that it's not the thing that actually gets you where you want to go. Um, obviously we all have willpower, but like this, this, in the context of this question, I'm talking about at the end of the day, you've made so many decisions, how I, def- you know, willpower and decision-making are very tied together. If you, and really it's all about just your ability to make high quality decisions. So at the end of the day, you've made so many decisions, you're fried. And so this is why high dopamine seeking happens at night. You, you, you could either, you know, binge out on garbage food or on media, but usually you're probably going to be making short-term decisions at the end of the day, which can actually compromise your confidence long-term and also, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, the context of that is that you want to avoid low willpower situations. It's actually a a confirmation that you shouldn't rely on willpower (laughs) that, you know, if you're relying on willpower in bad situations, you're probably going to fall to the situation, whether it's your own exhaustion or to a bad situation. Uh, and so that actually is an argument for going to bed early so that you don't have to deal with willpower. Because <laughs> right. if you're going to rely on willpower, which most people do, they make a lot of crappy decisions at night because their willpower wasn't enough. It's interesting. I, I think I shared with you earlier, you know, we actually live in an RV. We're full-time travelers, which you actually talk about travel as a way to kind of expand and grow. And I agree, it's very difficult to travel and be narrow-minded and you know, as Dweck says, fix in your mindset. You think, you think bigger. But one of the things my wife and I noticed, Ben, was that we would begin experiencing decision fatigue. Fatigue. Where are we going to stay next week? <laughs> I you love know, right it. <laughs> now, right now we're sort of permanent. But you know, if you're in a, we call it a sticks and bricks house. If you're in a geographically fixed location, 
you don't think about that. You know, you think about other things, you know, you've got other things on your mind, but, but we have this thought right now, it's spring of 2020. We're probably going to be leaving Colorado and heading East, but you know, we're not sure where we're going to be. We need to make some decisions about that. We're planners. We like to plan things out. So we see I love planning. fatigue and things like that. So maybe you could, maybe I could coach you on getting an RV and you could get out and hit the road with, with your family too. That'd be awesome. That would be amazing. So another label that I just brought it up is, is Dweck talks about fixed and growth mindset. And, and to me for many years, since she came out with that book back in 06, 08, somewhere like that, that has allowed me to, gosh, I hate to say label people, but probably I've labeled people because I'll interact with someone and I'll say, you know, it's really going to be hard for me to do some things with them because they really are operating from that fixed mindset. But yet we're labeling people again. I guess the, the last thing before we, we wrap here is it, it isn't that absolute, I, I don't think. Aren't we all on somewhat of a spectrum in all of this that you're talking about? I mean, even when we say that 13% of the people are unsatisfied, if we were to ask them if they were satisfied with their marriage, they might say yes, but with their life in general, no. So talk about the spectrum and the danger of, or if it's possible to be absolute. Like, in other words, can I say, I'm a growth mindset person, you're fixed, and that's just the way it is. (laughs) Spectrum thinking is a lot closer as far as looking at personality yeah so like the most scientific view of personality and i and i it's an imperfect model there's no there are no perfect models for any of this but the most scientific one is called the big five and it breaks personality into five factors all of which are a spectrum you know so introvert and extrovert is a spectrum which we're all somewhere on that and we move based on different situations different roles and just in different periods of our lives so you're never one or the other in fact, Carl Jung said a, a pure introvert, you know, you're never a pure anything. If you were a pure introvert, you, you, he would say that such a person would be in a loony asylum. You know, like right. we all have. Um, so, yeah, there's, I think a, there, there's actually there's a lot of jokes going around now with people on in isolation about extroverts, which I lean more towards are kind of going crazy, you know, being on having to stay home. And the introverts are like, what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, are you, do you think you're going crazy? No, I'm good. I'm getting to talk to people like you. Yeah, I think you're good. I think you're fine. Um, yeah, so trying to, trying to organize my thoughts for this question. So remind me what the question was, because it is a spectrum well, for sure. Well, oh, was, was, so, was, so just really not being absolutist about, and with labels? Yeah, absolute versus spectrum, which is okay. probably the bigger point of what yeah. you're saying with this book. Well, I think I got it. I think I got it. So here's this. So yes, I would say we all have a growth mindset in various areas and fixed mindset in other areas. There's areas that you have a growth mindset and there's areas that you avoid and that you've defined yourselves as this is not something I'm going to ever be good at. Um, and so I think it's contextual. I think we all are more nuanced than just, yes, I have a growth mindset. Cause I can tell you there's areas that I have a growth mindset and, and, and there's areas I have a fixed mindset and my growth mindset could expand as I build more confidence. It's not like I've reached the level where I have it. It's like, no, you can get better and better at believing you can change. Um, you know, so it, I don't think that there's ever a place where you arrived at. Yes, I have that growth mindset. It's, no, you believe you can change a little bit more than you did yesterday or, or less. Um, and in some areas of your life, you've got very limiting beliefs. And so I, I think that it's more contextual, um, so yeah, that's my perspective. Just that, yeah. yeah, 
some people definitely have it in areas where it wouldn't maybe be good for you to work with them. I mean, I'm not saying you can't use that as a model. I think it's a great, a great model, but it is true that if you overly define them in absolute terms, I think you're, you're doing them a disservice because it's probably not fully true. Sure. Sure. What's the message you really want people to get from reading this book? I think spending that, time with I, this book? I think that the real message that I want people to understand it, there's a, there's a section in the introduction. I'm going to just read it, honestly. <laughs> Go, yeah, um, excellent. This is a, a story that I think really matters to me when I think about this book. It's at the introduction. It's honestly a little characterization of Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't know, you, oh. probably, you probably saw this. <laughs> but, but this is really matters to me personally. It says, who you become is a choice, which only you can make. Um, Albus Dumbledore, the wise wizard from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, understood this. When Harry Potter was seeking guidance, trying to understand why the sorting hat suggested he joined the Slytherin house, Dumbledore explained, it is our choices, Harry, that show us who we truly are, truly are far more than our abilities. Harry Potter wasn't born to be a Gryffindor. He didn't have the innate personality of a Gryffindor. He chose to be one, and that choice and the experiences that followed shaped his personality. Although fictional, Dumbledore's lesson is fundamental to understanding the truth of personality. Who you become is, you become who you choose to be yet fully choosing who you are and will become is rare. We've been brainwashed into believing we don't have such a choice. Facing the responsibility and freedom of choosing your own way is indeed scary. I, I go further and further, but I think that that's kind of where you have a choice. Um, either you focus on ability or you focus on whatever you think is there or you focus on choice. You focus on possibility and change. And I think that that's kind of the options, you, you know, and for me, I, I'm a big believer in choice, a believer in agency and a believer that we're here to make choices and that we do choose who we become. Uh, and that from that perspective, in a lot of ways, our destiny is in, a, in, a, in our own hands. Um, obviously, there's a lot involved. There's context and there's so many other things, but we still have to make that choice for ourselves. And that's kind of what I'm trying to tell people regardless of what some personality test told you are, regardless of who you've been in the past, you can choose to be different. Um, and that's why I invite people. And I love the research on future self is that you have to define who you want to be, which is your choice. And then you can go and become that person. And if you don't, then you've limited your ability to make choices. And so I, that, I think that that's the crux of the message for me is that we, you can make choices and that you're not, you're not confined. Yeah. I, that's what I want people to know. Excellent. Excellent. Well, a couple quick questions as we wrap. You seem to be, you know, we talked about iconoclast earlier, breaking up some traditions with willpower and with, and with the personality. One of the things I kept thinking of is, of was, I wonder what he's going to attack next. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have I mean, you mentioned the book with Dan Sullivan, strategic coach and, and is there anything else that you're going to go after that we're going to read it that I'm going to be uncomfortable when I see the title in a couple of years? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm going to write next. I, I I'm playing with ideas. Um, the Dan Sullivan book was more his ideas, but my take on his ideas. Uh, and I really, he, you know, the book's called who not how, which actually is an attack on a lot of common ways of doing things, but he really let me be the who, you know, in that case. And so he didn't tell me how to write that book. He let me write whatever book I wanted because I was the author, even though he's a co-author and he's kind of the main author. So that book's really interesting. But as far as next books, I'm definitely playing with the ideas right now. I'm, you know, going to be mostly talking about personality for a while. And my, my goal 
you know, my future self, just to kind of explain is I'm definitely going to actually in the next two years, I've already kind of started uncommitting to a lot of the entrepreneurial things that I'm currently doing. And, you know, the future Benjamin Hardy will be writing books still on popular concepts, but I will be doing a lot more kind of church gospel related stuff. And so in order for that future self to become a reality, I, I want to sell millions of copies of personalities and permanent. And so that's kind of my main focus right now is, is getting this book out there. Cause I, I think that it's great. And I, I do, I do want to be positioned in a various way financially and in other aspects for future goals of Benjamin Hardy. But I, I know already that I'm going to probably start one or two books probably in the fall, probably one major book. And I don't know what that's gonna be. I'm playing with a few ideas and, um, one of them being as related to the idea of being present. Like, I think that there's a lot of bad advice. And I recently wrote an article on this. A lot of people talk, and even a lot of people talk about the idea that now is all there is. And that, you know, you ha you know the future doesn't exist. The past is just a memory that you need to focus on now. Uh, even Eckhart totally talked about the power of now. Um, and I, I think that that's really bad advice, frankly. I think it's, I think that there is a lot more than just now. And actually from like a decision-making standpoint, it's impossible to know who you are now unless you have a future self. And so like you mentioned that you like preparing and even thinking about COVID-19, I think that it's impossible to live presently unless you're actually preparing for a future. Um, and like if you're preparing and anticipating and seeking a future, then you can live well in the present. It's not just about there is no future, there is no past, there's only now. I think that, I think that's garbage. Um, and so I might write a book attacking that and explaining this, like, you know, the idea that it's impossible to live well in the present without a future. Um, I don't really don't know what I'm actually going to write about in the future. You know, I'm, I'm, I haven't landed on or decided what I'm going to stake the claim on next. <laughs> I could see some, uh, I could see some catchy titles in that. And it's interesting because I'm very similar to that. I like to plan so I can many times be more future oriented than present oriented and that's not necessarily healthy either. And, uh, but you know, kind of like you, we, we love to kind of push the envelope. We've actually structured everything we do to be mobile, to be nimble. We've gotten rid of a lot of stuff, you know, kind of the essentialism mindset so that I we can that. do and go where we believe, you know, the father wants us to go. That's really our belief. And and a lot of it is getting to where we don't have a lot of things burdening us. And that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I look forward to hearing more from you. And we'll definitely keep uh, keep in communication and and understand. I highly recommend, we're going to put it in, in the, the notes, I highly recommend people get Willpower Doesn't Work. And especially at about the time this is being released, it is right around release date for personality isn't permanent. So I highly recommend people get those. And I'm sure that people will hear be hearing more from you. Final question I've got for you. Title of our podcast is seek, go create. There's a lot of meaning to a lot of those words, but which one of those words jumps out to you and why seek, go create? Uh, I mean, they're all incredibly meaningful and they all sound very similar to me. Um, seek and go sound very similar to me uh, and create is to me the opposite of being who you were in the past I'd probably say seek I think I, I really like the idea of seek in this case you know seeking learning seeking your future self I think seeking leads to going and creating which may be why you put them in that order um, and so I, I think seeking even answers or seeking context and information um, seeking truth 
So I think I'll go with seek. Excellent. Ben, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. It's been so rich, so enjoyable. Again, I highly recommend if you're listening that you get his books. There's a lot of, he's got a lot of content out there and just study what he's doing. He is strongly desiring to push us to be our best selves. That's what I believe and I'm a big proponent of that. So thank you so much for being a part of the Seek Go Create podcast. Listeners, if you would like to continue the conversation, and I encourage you to, we welcome that. Go to seekgocreate.com. That's seekgocreate.com to comment on this episode, post or contact us. You can also find us and communicate on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those places, we are Seek Go Create. Just do do a search, Seek Go Create. You'll find us. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you on the Seek Go Create podcast in the near future.